Chapter Eight of Hard Times by Charles Dickens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Hard Times by Charles Dickens. Chapter Eight. Never wonder. Let us strike the keynote again before pursuing the tune. When she was a half a dozen years younger, Louisa had been overheard to begin a conversation with her brother one day, by saying, "'Tom, I wonder,' upon which Mr. Gradgrind, who was the person overhearing, stepped forth into the light, and said, "'Louisa, never wonder.' Herein lay the spring of the mechanical art and mystery of educating the reason without stooping to the cultivation of the sentiments and affections never wonder by means of addition subtraction multiplication and division settle everything somehow and never wonder bring to me says mcjoakum child yonder baby just able to walk and i will engage that it shall never wonder now besides very many babies just able to walk there happen to be in coketown a considerable population of babies who had been walking against time towards the infinite world twenty thirty forty fifty years or more these portentous infants being alarming creatures to stalk about in any human society the eighteen denominations incessantly scratched one another's faces and pulled one another's hair by way of agreeing on the steps to be taken for their improvement which they never did a surprising circumstance when the happy adaptation of the means to the end is considered still although they differed in every other particular conceivable and inconceivable especially inconceivable they were pretty well united on the point that these unlucky infants were never to wonder body number one said they must take everything on trust Body number two said they must take everything on political economy. Body number three wrote leaden little books for them, showing how the good grown-up baby invariably got to the savings bank, and the bad grown-up baby invariably got transported. Body number four, under dreary pretenses of being droll, when it was very melancholy indeed, made the shallowed pretenses of concealing pitfuls of knowledge into which it was the duty of these babies to be smuggled and inveigled but all the bodies agreed that they were never to wonder there was a library in coketown to which general access was easy mr gradgrind greatly tormented his mind about what the people read in this library a point whereon little rivers of tabular statements periodically flowed into the howling ocean of tabular statements which no diver ever got to any depth in and came up sane. It was a disheartening circumstance, but a melancholy fact, that even these readers persisted in wondering. They wondered about human nature, human passions, human hopes and fears, the struggles, triumphs, and defeats, the cares and joys and sorrows, the lives and deaths of common men and women. They sometimes, after fifteen hours' work, sat down to read mere fables about men and women more or less like themselves, and about children more or less like their own. 
they took Defoe to their bosoms instead of Euclid, and seemed to be, on the whole, more comforted by Goldsmith than by Cocker. Mr. Gradgrind was forever working, in print and out of print, at this eccentric sum, and he could never make out how it yielded this unaccountable product. I am sick of my life, Lou. I hate it altogether. I hate everybody, except you said the unnatural young Thomas Gradgrind in the hair-cutting chamber at twilight. You don't hate Sissy, Tom. I hate to be obliged to call her dupe, and she hates me, said Tom moodily. No, she does not, Tom, I'm sure. She must, said Tom. She must just hate and detest the whole set out of us. They'll bother her head off, I think, before they have done with her. Already she's getting as pale as wax and as heavy as I am." Young Thomas expressed his sentiments sitting astride of a chair before the fire, with his arms on the back and his sulky face on his arms. His sister sat in the darker corner by the fireside, now looking at him, now looking at the bright sparks as they dropped upon the hearth. "'As to me,' said Tom, tumbling his hair all manner of ways with his sulky hands, "'I am a donkey, that's what I am.' I am as obstinate as one, I am more stupid than one, I get as much pleasure as one, and I should like to kick like one. Not me, I hope, Tom. No, Lou, I wouldn't hurt you. I made an exception of you at first. I don't know what this jolly old jaundiced jail. Tom had paused to find a sufficiently complimentary and expressive name for his parental roof and seemed to relieve his mind for a moment by the strong alliteration of this one. I will be without you. Indeed, Tom. Do you really and truly say so? Why, of course I do. What's the use of talking about it? returned Tom, chafing his face on his coat-sleeve as if to mortify his flesh and have it in unison with his spirit. Because, Tom, said his sister, after silently watching the sparks a while, as I get older and nearer growing up, I often sit wondering here and think how unfortunate it is for me that I can't reconcile you to home better than I am able to do. I don't know what other girls know. I can't play to you or sing to you. I can't talk to you so as to lighten your mind, for I never see any amusing sights or read any amusing books that it would be a pleasure or a relief to you to talk about when you are tired. Well, no more do I. I am as bad as you in that respect. And I am a mule, too, which you're not. If father was determined to make me either a prig or a mule, and I am not a prig, why, it stands to reason, I must be a mule, and so I am," said Tom, desperately. It's a great pity, said Louisa, after another pause, and speaking thoughtfully out of her dark corner, It's a great pity, Tom. It's very unfortunate for both of us. Oh, you, said Tom. You are a girl, Lou, and a girl comes out of it better than a boy does. I don't miss anything in you. You're the only pleasure I have. You can brighten even this place, and you can always lead me as you like. You are a dear brother, Tom, and while you think I can do such things, I don't so much mind knowing better. Though I do know better, Tom, and am very sorry for it. She came and kissed him, and went back into her corner again. I wish I could collect all the facts we hear so much about," 
said Tom, spitefully setting his teeth. And all the figures, and all the people have found them out, and I wish I could put a thousand barrels of gunpowder under them and blow them all up together. However, when I go to live with old Bounderby, I'll have my revenge. Your revenge, Tom? I mean, I'll enjoy myself a little, and go about and see something and hear something. I'll recompense myself for the way in which I've been brought up. But don't disappoint yourself beforehand, Tom. Mr. Bounderby thinks as father thinks, and is a great deal rougher and not half so kind. Oh, <laughs> said Tom, laughing. I don't mind that. I shall very well know how to manage and smooth old Bounderby. Their shadows were defined upon the wall, but those of the high presses in the room were all blended together on the wall and the ceiling, as if the brother and sister were overhung by a dark cavern. Or, a fanciful imagination, if such treason could have been there, might have made it out to be the shadow of their subject, and of its lowering association with their future. What is your great mode of smoothing and managing, Tom? Is it a secret? Oh, said Tom. If it is a secret, it's not far off. It's you. You are his little pet. You are his favorite. He'll do anything for you. When he says to me what I don't like, I shall say to him, My sister Lou will be hurt and disappointed, Mr. Bounderby. She always used to tell me she was sure you would be easier with me than this. That'll bring him about, or nothing will. After waiting for some answering remark and getting none, Tom wearily relapsed into the present time, and twined himself yawning round and about the rails of his chair, and rumpled his head more and more, until he suddenly looked up and asked, Have you gone to sleep, Lou? No, Tom. I am looking at the fire. You seem to find more to look at in it than ever I could find, said Tom. Another of the advantages, I suppose, of being a girl. Tom? inquired his sister slowly, and in a curious tone, as if she were reading what she asked in the fire, and it was not quite plainly written there. Do you look forward with any satisfaction to this change to Mr. Bounderby's? Why, there's one thing to be said of it, returned Tom, pushing his chair from him and standing up. It will be getting away from home. There is one thing to be said of it, Louisa repeated in her former curious tone. It will be getting away from home, yes. Not but I shall be very unwilling, both to leave you, Lou, and to leave you here. But I must go, you know, whether I like it or not, and I had better go where I can take with me some advantage of your influence than where I should lose it altogether, don't you see? Yes, Tom. The answer was so long in coming, though there was no indecision in it, that Tom went and leaned on the back of her chair to contemplate the fire which so engrossed her from her point of view, and see what he could make of it. Except that it is a fire, said Tom. It looks to me as stupid as blank as everything else looks. What do you see in it? Not a circus? I don't see anything in it, Tom, particularly. But since I have been looking at it, I have been wondering about you and me, grown up. Wondering again, said Tom. I have such unmanageable thoughts, returned his sister, that they will wonder. Then I beg of you, Louisa, said Mrs. Gradgrind, who had opened the door without being heard. 
to do nothing of that description for goodness sake you inconsiderate girl or i shall never hear the last of it from your father and thomas it's really shameful with my poor head continually wearing me out that a boy brought up as you have been and whose education has cost what yours has should be found encouraging his sister to wonder when he knows his father has expressly said that she is not to do it louisa denied tom's participation in the offence but her mother stopped her with the conclusive answer louisa don't tell me in my state of health for unless you had been encouraged it is morally and physically impossible that you could have done it i was encouraged by nothing mother but by looking at the red sparks dropping out of the fire and whitening and dying it made me think after all how short my life would be and how little i could hope to do in it nonsense said mrs gradgrind rendered almost energetic nonsense don't stand there and tell me such stuff louisa to my face when you know very well that if it was ever to reach your father's ears i should never hear the last of it after all the trouble that has been taken with you after the lectures you have attended and the experiments you have seen after i have heard you myself when the whole of my right side has been benumbed going on with your master about combustion and calcination and calorification and i may say every kind of ation that could drive a poor invalid distracted to hear you talking in this absurd way about sparks and ashes i wish whimpered mrs gradgrind taking a chair and discharging her strongest points before succumbing under these mere shadows of facts yes i really do wish that i had never had a family and then you would have known what it was to do without me End of chapter eight